Good morning. Um, welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys. Let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school classrooms. And our Bible English class, we'll let them go on out as well. As for the rest of us, we're going to turn our attention to the Word of the Lord and our continued study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so uh, today we're going to be looking at the beginning section of chapter 5. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, feel free to reach down and borrow one of the Bibles that are around you uh, in the chairs. Uh, We do think it important to follow along and to read the Bible for yourself. Now, last week, we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, in a message I entitled, Our Hope and Comfort. And we noted how Paul didn't want the church to be ignorant regarding the dead in Christ and God's plan for them when it came to the return of Christ. Also, Paul didn't want them to mourn like those who have no hope. You see, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the hope of life beyond the grave. We have the hope of eternity, the hope of heaven. And in regard to that hope we have, we noted in verses 14 through 18, five things that we can base our hope and comfort upon as review. We noted how our comfort and hope is based upon the return of Christ, the promise that we have from the Lord that Jesus Christ will return for us, His church. We need not be troubled, right? We need not be concerned. He's gone to prepare a place for us, and in due time, He will return for us. We also noted how our hope and comfort is based upon the revelation by Christ, that God has revealed to us everything we need to know about the future and God's plan for us through His Word. Next, we noted how we have hope and comfort in our resurrection in Christ. God has... uh, Uh, Jesus Christ uh, rose from the dead on the third day, and he became for us the first fruits of those who would be resurrected with glorified bodies that are made for eternity. And after that, we noted Paul's word regarding the event we often refer to as the rapture and how we can have hope and comfort in our rapture to Christ, that there is coming a day where Christ will come in the clouds and call uh, to those who are his, and we will be caught up. We will be raptured to be with the Lord in the air, and that from then on, we will be with the Lord for all of eternity. And that led us to the last thing we noted regarding our reunion with Christ. How after the rapture takes place, we will be brought into the presence of the Lord, and our pilgrimage will be complete. We will spend eternity in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. And what a glorious hope that is, right? What great comfort it ought to bring to us who are saved, okay? Knowing that we will one day enter into his presence in heaven and we will spend an eternity by his side. How glorious and awesome that day will be. Amen? Amen. Well, today, as we make our way into the fifth and final chapter of Paul's first letter to Thessalonians, we're going to continue looking at details regarding the comfort that we have in Christ. But as we go through the opening of chapter 5, we're going to see that the comfort we receive from chapter 5 is much different from the comfort we read, uh, read about last week in chapter 4. In chapter 4, Paul spoke about things we can be comforted by that will or have happened to us, while chapter 5 speaks of things we can take comfort in that will not happen 
to us. In chapter 5, Paul speaks of an event known as the Day of the Lord. And as we get into our study, we're going to note various aspects pertaining to the Day of the Lord and what it means to us as believers and what it means to those who are unbelievers, those who are outside of the faith. So our text this morning is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The title of our study together is going to simply be the Day of the Lord. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His holy word? I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. I want to encourage you, uh, whatever translation you're reading from, do your best to follow along. So, Paul writes the following to the church in Thessalonica, chapter 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to open it up and to allow uh, just your spirit to lead us and guide us through it. Lord, I pray that you would give to us um, an open heart, an open mind, uh, open ears, that we might receive what your spirit desires to say to us, your church. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be glorified in our time of study. Father, that you would be magnified as well. So we give you it, uh, and we look for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Here in our text before us, Paul brings up a subject that has caused a lot of confusion and has brought about a lot of questions regarding God's plan for the future as it pertains to end times and the day of the Lord. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is found 26 times in 24 verses within the New King James Version of the Bible, depending upon what translation you're reading from. It varies by a couple verses here and there. And if you were to look up and read every instance of when this term is used, you would see a very consistent description of what this day will be like. And I'm not going to read all 26 times that it is, but I did grab a, a large sample that I might share with you that we might see this repetitive consistency and description of what the day of the Lord will be like. And so listen to what Isaiah the prophet has to say about this day. He writes, "...the noise of a multitude in the mountains..." Like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country. From the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, 
For the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will, be, will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Jeremiah, he declares, for this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. The prophet Joel, he states, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. For it is at hand a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Amos, he declares, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Listen to how the prophet Zephaniah describes it. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There, are, there the mighty men shall cry out. The day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon man, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Zechariah tells us, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city." Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem in the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Even Peter in the New Testament speaks of this day when he wrote in 2 Peter but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And so we can see that the day of the Lord is a day of 
destruction. It is a day of God's wrath and fierce anger, a day where God will judge the sinner and punish the world for its evil, a day of vengeance and great trembling, where God will gather the nations that have come against Jerusalem and go to battle against them, a day of darkness and gloominess, and it will be a bitter day of trouble, distress, devastation, and desolation. The scriptures are quite clear on these things. And yet, Paul writes about how there is comfort and encouragement to be found surrounding the topic of this day. How can that be? How can that be that as we look and we read about this day of destruction and and desolation, how, how can that be comforting to us? Well, Let's dive back into our text to see how. Take a look again at our opening verses in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. We'll stop right there. So Paul opens the chapter speaking about the times and seasons. And it's here that we're going to do our best to address the timing of the day of the Lord based upon what we know from Scripture. Now, When it comes to the timing of the day of the Lord and the events associated with it, there are a number of various interpretations and teachings that are out there. And when referencing the day of the Lord, most scholars, I think they can most all agree on a few things, and one of them is that the day of the Lord is something that's associated with what we call end times events. And the study of end times is referred to as eschatology. Okay, it's a real fancy word that scholars like to use. Um, eschatology simply means the study of, of last things or the study of end times. Okay, And so in regards to Scripture, we're talking about things that are going to happen at the end of time or when the Lord comes back. Okay, Again, there are many different viewpoints regarding eschatology, some that have merit and are worth consideration, others that should be immediately discarded for they contradict the clear and simple understanding of the Scriptures. And time would not allow us to discuss all the various interpretations and the main points from each of them, the strengths and weaknesses of them all, but I do want to set forth what I believe to be an accurate portrayal of the day of the Lord and the events associated with the end times. But Before we go any further, though, I want to set your mind at ease that one's viewpoint on eschatology is not something that we need to be divided over. Whether or not you believe the day of the Lord will happen uh, before or after the millennial kingdom, or whether or not you even believe that in a literal thousand-year reign, uh, whether you believe that the day of the Lord will include the tribulation, or if the church will go through the tribulation, whether the church will be raptured before the tribulation or after the tribulation, it doesn't matter when it comes to our standing with the Lord. Okay, Our eschatological viewpoint is not a salvation issue. We are not saved if we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and also have a proper understanding of end times. Okay, I want to make sure everybody understands that. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. See, our views on end times does not impact our standing in regards to our salvation. And while it is not a salvation issue, it is a biblical issue. It is something the Bible speaks much about. And so we want to do our best to know that this, what the Scriptures teach and how they fit together. 
Paul and other New Testament writers, and even Jesus himself, give to us applicational points about how to live our lives in the light of the day of the Lord. And so we want to have, to the best of our ability, a proper understanding of these things. And so it is really important, okay, that we all understand that while biblical eschatology is an important issue, this is not a salvation issue. It is not something that we in the church should break fellowship over. Okay? I'm going to present to you what I believe from an eschatology point, okay? and you may not agree with me. Okay? But what I believe, and I hope you do as well, that this isn't something that we have to break fellowship over with. Oh, I can't come to this church because you know, I don't agree with everything he says about his view on the end times. Okay? We can have differences of opinion. Okay, and we could talk about it, and we can encourage one another and spur one another on and challenge one another's points of view and just sharpen each other. That's okay, okay? as long as we do it in a respectful way. Uh, I don't see any harm or issue in that. And so it's not something that we need to break fellowship over. Okay? Now, you guys, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. Now we know in part, but there will come a time where we shall know just as we also are known. You see, as we look ahead to the future and end times events, it is difficult to know how all of it fits together. We see dimly. We see various aspects of the end, and and we try to fit them all together, but it is difficult to be dogmatic upon our own views of how things fit. I'm going to share what I believe is an accurate representation, okay? But I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. I'm not going to say, this has to be the way. This is just one way, okay? I, I believe it's the accurate way myself, okay? But again, that's just my perspective, and I'm going to do my best to support my perspective, okay? That's my disclaimer. I don't want to get any uh, hate mail or uh, evil uh, anything, you know, like, oh, he said this, okay? This is not a salvation issue, okay? But it is a very important one, okay? Back to our text, the timing connected with this day of the Lord. Now, there are two major thoughts and opinions connected with the timing of this day of the Lord. Okay, some think of this day of the Lord as a single day in history that's connected with what Paul was speaking about when he referenced the rapture of the church back in chapter 4, that the day of the Lord and the rapture will happen at the same time, that both these events, the rapture of the church, the coming day of the Lord, and really all the events associated with it are speaking about the same literal day that the day of the Lord will be an instantaneous event when Christ returns to earth to redeem his faithful believers and send unbelievers to eternal damnation. That's one perspective, just to look at that day as a literal day. The other view is that the day of the Lord is to be associated with a period of time where God's will and purpose for this world and for mankind will be fulfilled that takes place after the events of chapter 4 and the rapture instead of at the same time. Proponents of this view look at the day of the Lord more like a season where God comes to bring his wrath upon the world, to save Israel, to come against the nations, to establish his earthly physical reign upon the earth, culminating in the destruction of Satan and the renewal of heaven and earth. And and you guys, I just want to let you know, that's where I land myself. Okay, I believe that the day of the Lord represents more of a season of time that will come to pass after the events of chapter 4 and the rapture of the church. You see, the word day can be understood in a number of different ways based upon the context that surrounds it. It can be used to speak about a literal 24-hour day, right? Uh, But it can also be used to speak about just the part of the 24-hour period where the sun is shining versus when the sun is not shining. We call these differences day 
and night, which constitute one full day. And so we refer to a full day as a day, but we also can refer to 12 hours of a day as day because that's when the sun's shining during the day, right? And it can also be used to reference a period of time. We can say back in Jesus's day to refer to a season of time associated with the life of Jesus. And so just because it is referred to as the day of the Lord doesn't mean it has to be a literal 24-hour period. It could simply be referencing a season or a time frame associated with certain events. Again, this is the stance that I take and believe most accurately lines up with Scripture. And we must understand that Jesus' first coming lasted some three decades as Jesus walked this earth. God had him fulfill a number of prophecies and aspects pertaining to his work as the Messiah, the anointed one of the Lord, but he didn't fulfill them all. Right? And when we talk about when did the Lord first come, we, we technically could say, well, he first came at his birth, right? And that's when he first came. But we also understand that his first coming also was his life, uh, 30 years, uh, uh, three years of public ministry, his death and resurrection, right? We all associate that with his first coming, though technically we could say, well, he first came when he was born as a babe. But, you know, we understand that. I, I think similarly when we think about the second coming. And Jesus' second coming will also be a season where he comes and he fulfills all the remaining aspects of his ministry as God's Messiah. He will fulfill all the prophecies that remain for him. You see, in his first coming, Jesus came as the suffering servant, as a sacrificial lamb of God. But in his second coming, he will come as the conquering king, as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. And just as his first coming involved a season of time, so too, I believe, his second coming will. It's my conviction that the many end times events in the Bible, that they are all connected to this phrase or idea of the day of the Lord. That events like the tribulation, the rise and fall of the Antichrist, the battle of Armageddon, the physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth, the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth, the great white throne judgment, the lake of fire, the new heaven, the new earth, that these are all events that are connected to the day of the Lord, a season where God comes to fulfill his ultimate plan of redemption for mankind and the earth that he created. Now, it is very interesting to me that Paul goes from speaking about the rapture in chapter 4, something that he didn't want the church to be ignorant about and something they didn't quite understand, to the day of the Lord, and he mentions that the day of the Lord is something that he didn't need to write to them about. And this leads me to believe that the events of the rapture and the events of the day of the Lord are different. They're related, that's for sure, but they are, I believe, separate. The church didn't understand the rapture and how it related to the dead in Christ and those who would be alive and remain at the coming of the Lord. But here in chapter 5, Paul makes it seem like the day of the Lord was something he didn't need to address with them. The idea is that Paul, during his short time with them, had explained to them what was to happen at the end of time when Christ would come back and establish his reign upon the earth. He didn't need to tell them about that, but he did have to tell them about the rapture, which again leads me to believe that they're separate events. It's my opinion that the events of chapter 4 will usher in the events of chapter 5, that the Lord will descend from heaven in the clouds and call His church to Himself in the air, and he, we will be raptured from this earth, caught up, removed from the earth, and then will come the events associated with the day of the Lord. And so I think and believe and teach that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are two different events. And if you look at the details, you can kind of see there's different details associated with these events. 
During the rapture, believers meet the Lord in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. But at the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth as part of the armies of heaven, according to Revelation 19.14. The second coming occurs after the events of Revelation chapter 6 through 18, a time we refer to as the tribulation, a time where God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world with the seven uh, seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments. Okay? But it would seem that the rapture occurs before the tribulation based upon scriptures like Revelation 3.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9, which is part of our text today, and we'll get to that later on. The rapture, you guys, is the removal of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance, while the second coming includes the removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment. The second coming of Christ will not occur until after certain other end times events take place, like the tribulation discussed in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. But the rapture is imminent. It could take place at any moment in time. And so I believe there's enough that distinguishes these two events from one another so that we should understand them as being separate events. Related to each other, that's for sure, but separate and that they are not the same exact event. The church in Thessalonica had been instructed on the times and seasons associated with the day of the Lord. They knew that the day of the Lord would come as a thief in the night. Now, the idea behind the day of the Lord coming as a thief in the night, it speaks of a few different things. Number one, okay, it speaks about something coming unexpectedly. Okay, we don't know when the thief's going to come and try to rob us, right? The thief does not announce his coming. He does not let us know in advance when he's coming. Likewise, we do not know the exact day of the Lord. God has not announced when that day will be. He has not let us know in advance when the exact day and hour will be. And so those out there that try to claim they know the day and the hour of the Lord should be immediately discredited, for that goes against the clear teaching of Scripture in the very words of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And so, you know, I said there are sometimes some views that are out there that you could just immediately discredit it. This is one of those. If someone comes along and says, oh, God's given me a revelation, and I've studied it, and I've seen it, and God's going to come back on this date, people that are into date setting, and don't waste your time with them, okay? You just immediately discredit that. Another idea presented by the imagery of a thief coming in the night is the imminence of it. It could happen at any time. A thief could come and rob you at any time. There isn't anything necessarily that the thief has to particularly wait for before he attempts to rob you, other than it being in an ideal time, uh, a time when we least expect it. And this is how the day of the Lord and the rapture are related. The rapture of the church, Jesus is coming for his church, not his coming for judgment, could happen at any time and trigger the day of the Lord. And still another idea that is presented by the imagery of the thief in the night is the inability to escape it. You guys know and understand this, right? No one knows that a thief has visited them until it's too late, right? The thief comes in the night, and it isn't until the next day when you awake that you realize that well, you've been robbed, right? And the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. When it begins, it will already be too late to avoid it, okay? There will be no escaping it. And it would seem that the church in Thessalonica was well aware of these facets pertaining to the day of the Lord, that it would be unexpected, that it was imminent, that it was inescapable for a certain group of people. 
And I say a certain group of people because Paul makes a clear distinction in verses 3 through 5. Read them with me. He says, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. We'll stop right there. Did you guys see that? In verses 1 and 2, Paul was using the first and second person pronouns. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know But in verse 3, did you notice that Paul changed his usage of pronouns? He went from you and I to they and them. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. He continues the contrast in verse 4, but, right, it's a word of contrast, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. And so Paul makes a very clear distinction. There are two groups of people. Those who will escape the day and those who will not escape the day. Those who will face sudden destruction and those who will not. And it would seem that the defining difference between these two groups is whether or not you are of the day or of the night, whether you are in the light or in the darkness. And these imageries, we are familiar with them. They're speaking about the differences between believers and unbelievers. Paul refers to the sons of the light and the sons of the day as his brethren, okay? Paul lumped himself in with this group that was not of the night nor of the darkness. You see, he says we, okay, the third person plural pronoun, he associates himself with the brethren in opposition to those who are of the darkness and of the night. And according to Ephesians chapter 5, we were all once part of the darkness We all were once part of the night. Ephesians 5, 8 states, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we were removed from the darkness, and we were made set into the light. Jesus is the light of the world, and he taught that while we have the light, we should believe in the light that we may become sons of light. Paul recounted his own salvation experience and commissioning from the Lord himself in Acts chapter 26, quoting how Jesus told Paul he was sending him to the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so we see here that the two different groups of people And their different experiences will all be based upon whether or not they are a believer, whether or not they are under the power of Satan or the power of God, whether or not their sins are forgiven or if they remain in their sins, whether or not they have been sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ or not. One group will experience the day of the Lord coming upon them like a thief in the night and not be able to escape it. The other group is different. The day will not overtake them. They will not experience it. The believers will not experience it because they will have already been raptured by the Lord, caught up to be with Him in the air prior to the day of the Lord. It will not come upon them because they won't be around when it comes. And in light of this truth, Paul gives some exhortations for us to follow in verses 6 through 8. Read these verses again with me. He says, Therefore, 
Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Previously in chapter 4, Paul used the word sleep to refer to those who had died. But here he uses the word differently. Okay, when Paul writes, therefore, let us not sleep, he isn't talking about dying, and he isn't necessarily speaking about physical rest either. Okay? He's speaking about being spiritually asleep, about being spiritually indifferent towards spiritual matters, or we might say uh, just being careless when it comes to God's expectations for us as sons and daughters of the light. God has a plan and a purpose for us that we are to walk in. And he wants us to be aware and alert to what is going on in this world. Even though we may not be part of the day of the Lord, that doesn't mean God wants us just to sit back in a passive role, ignoring the world around us and simply waiting for the day that he comes for us. No, that's not what God's plan is. It's not what his heart is for us. We aren't to sleep like others. Again, Paul's distinguishing between these two groups. Those that sleep and get drunk are of the night, but we are of the day. We are different from others, different from the unbelievers. And in light of these differences, Paul exhorts us to watch and to be sober. The word watch is a military term. Most of you guys in the military are familiar with this. It carries the idea of a group of soldiers posted to keep guard. Paul likes to use the imagery of a soldier when referring to our walk with the Lord. He did so on a number of occasions. Soldiers responsible for keeping a watch are to be aware of their surroundings. They are to notify others if anything happens outside of the norm. Likewise, the idea of us watching carries with it the idea of us studying our surroundings and noting things that are of significance, noting things that are outside the norm. We need to be familiar with the times and how they apply to our lives and the coming of the Lord. Jesus actually rebuked the religious leaders for their inability to discern the signs of the times. He said in Matthew's gospel, when in his evening you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Though we do not know the day nor the hour of the Lord's coming, we should be familiar with the signs of those times. Jesus spoke of what it would be like during the days leading up to his return, during his Olivet Discourse, which is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25. Jesus was there in Jerusalem by the temple, and he declared how not one stone would be left upon another. And the disciples, they came to Jesus, and they asked him, telling him, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus, if you're familiar with the portion, you know that he went on to speak about many coming in his name and the religious deception that would ensue. He spoke of wars and rumors of war, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And he said regarding these things, all these are the beginning of sorrows, or quite literally, they are the beginning of birth pains. And while I do not claim to have firsthand knowledge about birth pains, because I know that's a, you know, a rite of passage for some, and it's like, nope, you can't talk about that. Um, my wife tells me about it, okay? Um, I don't know a lot, but I know enough, okay? And what I do know 
and what I do understand about birth pains, okay, is that, one, they come over time, and another thing is that they involve pain, okay? Labor pains become more frequent over time. The closer you get to the delivery, the more frequent the labor pains. At first, they will be spread out over several minutes, but as the baby approaches, they become more and more regular with less time in between each round. Labor pains also increase in intensity the closer you are to the delivery. So I've heard. Uh, I'm not discrediting it, and I believe you, but I'm not trying to say from experience. The pains increase. They get more and more painful as the baby soon approaches. You guys, that is is what it's going to be like at the end. There will be certain signs that we can look for and understand that the more often they pop up, the greater intensity they have, the closer we are getting to that day. And why is it important for us to be watching for these things if we aren't going to be part of the day of the Lord? You guys, because it is a reminder that our time here on earth is short, that our time is limited, and we need to be about our Father's business okay, while we still can be. We need to get the word out to the world around us, to our loved ones, to our friends, to our family, so that they too can become children of light and not have to endure the wrath of God that will come on the day of the Lord. But you guys, there is a balance. For not only are we to be watchful, but Paul also exhorts us to be sober. Now, the word sober literally speaks of not being under the influence of intoxicating drink. I'm sure you guys know that. But in the New Testament, it's often used figuratively figuratively to speak of being sober-minded or clear-headed. It means to be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate and self-controlled. That means we don't go running around like Chicken Little crying out, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the end is here, we're all going to die. Anytime we think there's a sign, we don't do that. As we are watchful, we see things happening that could potentially pertain to the certain signs associated with His coming. We don't want to get all worked up about it and start claiming the end is here and these things are proof that He's coming. You guys, things like this happen all the time and it causes the world to look upon us as if we're crazy. Hey, you Christians are just cuckoo. Something happens in the world and we can sometimes get worked up about it and we think it may possibly be the fulfillment of certain scriptures. And we twist and churn certain prophecies to make them fit into the context of our current events and we go around claiming this is the end that God foretold of in the scriptures. And then when it doesn't come to pass the way we thought it would, we end up looking like fools. We end up looking like we're nut jobs. But guys, worse than that, We present God's word to the world as being unreliable and untrustworthy. When we start making claims and say, oh, this is the Bible says this is this, people start saying, well, can't even trust the Bible. And so we need to be sober. We need to be calm and collected. We are watchful. We pay attention. We tell people about what we see and how they could be important th- events to be mindful of. But we don't go around claiming God's word has been fulfilled and the end is upon us. There's a balance that needs to be struck. And part of being sober involves preparing ourselves defensively. As we're watchful and sober and we speak of things we see and read about that are happening around the world, we will come under attack. Right? People may not like what we have to say. The enemy will come against us. And that's why Paul speaks about putting on the breastplate 
of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. These are defensive pieces of armor that protect our hearts and our minds. As we continue in faith, love, and hope, God will protect us from the attacks of the enemy. We have these three, uh, once again, repeated throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, faith, hope, and love, over and over again, faith, hope, and love. As we see and understand things in this world falling apart, we need not get worked up. We need not lose our minds. We simply continue in faith. We continue in love, and we continue living for the hope of our salvation. And this leads us to verses 9 and 10. Read with me. He says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. In mentioning the hope of our salvation at the end of verse 8, Paul here affirms how God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Now, the day of the Lord, as we clearly read from the many different prophets at the opening of our time together, it is a day of wrath. It is a day of destruction and darkness and desolation and distress, a day of judgment upon sinners who have rejected God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But we have not been appointed to God's wrath. We will experience tribulations, you guys. We will experience difficulties. We will experience tough times in life. And I've often quoted how Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, right? I've often quoted how all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But the difference between those tribulations and persecutions and the tribulations that will come upon the world during the day of the Lord is the source. Currently, we experience tribulations from this world, right? We are persecuted by the enemy and the evil forces within this world. But the tribulation that is to come during the day of the Lord is the wrath of God. The source is different. We have been appointed to tribulations from this world. We will experience persecution from the enemy, but we have not been appointed to God's wrath. It is a very important distinction to make when it comes to our experiencing various tribulations and persecutions. One we can expect, one we are promised, will come from the world and the enemy. But the other, we are not appointed to because it is the wrath of God upon a Christ-rejecting world. And why are we not appointed to wrath? Well, verse 10 tells us, because Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus took our place upon the cross of Calvary and he paid our debts. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. Our sins were judged there upon the cross. They have been dealt with once and for all. We have been forgiven and so it doesn't make sense for God to have us experience the day of his wrath and judgment against sin. That would be like double jeopardy, right? Being prosecuted two different times for the same offense. God doesn't do that. Our sins were dealt with. They were judged, and we stand forgiven, and we stand redeemed before the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Verse 11 wraps up our text with a few commands for us to follow. Take a look at it with me as we look to wrap up our time together. Verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Paul wanted the church to comfort each other, to edify one another, or build one another up, your translation may read, regarding this wonderful truth pertaining to the day of the Lord. Church family, let me tell you something, okay? 
If the church was going to go through the experience of the day of the Lord, that would not be comforting and edifying to hear. Okay? Those would not be encouraging words to hear. Okay? That would be horrible news. That would be terrible news. But if, in fact, we will escape the day of the Lord because Christ died for us, and we have the hope of our salvation and deliverance secure in Him, well, then these words, they take on a, a whole new idea, meaning they, they greatly comfort us. They greatly encourage us. They greatly edify us, knowing, man, we, we have been saved from the wrath of God. We don't have to fear God's wrath being poured out upon us because our sins have been judged. They've been taken care of upon the cross of Calvary. And I love how this was something the, the church was already doing. The church in Thessalonica was already aware of this fact. Paul had already explained to them that because of their faith in Christ and what he did for them upon the cross of Calvary, they would not have to face this dreadful and disastrous day of the Lord. And if you're here this morning and you want to have that same assurance and confidence that you won't have to face the day of the Lord, all you have to do is place your hope and faith in Jesus Christ and his completed work upon the cross of Calvary. Jesus died upon the cross for your sins. He paid your penalty. He took the wrath of God upon himself so that you and I wouldn't have to. Jesus died upon the cross, but he rose from the grave in victory three days later, defeating sin and death. And he offers that same victory over sin and death to us if we will believe upon him as our Lord and Savior. The scriptures state in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So simple. So wonderful. So powerful. The hope of our salvation. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray as we bow our heads in prayer. I'd like to ask if there is anyone here this morning that would like to place their hope and faith in Jesus Christ that haven't done so already. Because if so, I'd love to pray for you. If you're here this morning and you'd like to have the assurance that you will not have to face the day of God's wrath, I'd like to ask that you just simply raise your hand up nice and high while we're praying. I, I want to just pray for you. God bless you. I see your hands. Praise the Lord. Lord, if there's anybody here that just has been wandering from you, Lord, that's just been, you know, doing things their own way. And they just realize that, that they need your grace. They need your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would stir in their hearts to make the choice today, to make that decision sure, to make that, have that assurance. Lord, for those that are, are raising their hand right now, Lord, I pray that you would be with them. Lord, I pray that they would understand and know that your work upon the cross was sufficient. Lord, that through faith in that work, their sins can be forgiven and they could be assured of their place in eternity with you. And so, Lord, bless them, I pray. Encourage them, comfort them. Lord, for those of us who have already surrendered our heart and life to you, Lord, I, I am... I'm just blown away, Lord, that you, would, that you would do that for us. We're fallen, and we blow it all the time still. 
yet you love us. You loved us so much that you were willing to send your son to die on the cross for us. That he was willing to lay his life down and to take upon himself the wrath of God. Also that we wouldn't have to. Also that we could have a right standing before you. Lord, we thank you for the plan of your salvation. We thank you for the work of salvation that you've worked upon our hearts and lives. And Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of that work, Lord, that we would celebrate and acknowledge the fact that, man, your grace has just overwhelmed us. Lord, that we can have just that peace that surpasses all understanding, that we will not have to face the consequences of our sin because of what you did for us. So, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the cross. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his sacrifice for us, his willingness to take our place. We thank you for the love that you have for us. And I pray that we would walk in boldness towards the world around us, Lord, that we would not be asleep. Lord, we would be watchful. We would understand the signs of the times that we would tell those around us that need to know, Lord, of your gospel message, that we would boldly proclaim it unashamedly. And so, Lord, lead us and guide us by your Spirit. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.